0: So one of my, Gracie Kate's my uh, almost eight-year-old, and one of her very favorite things to talk about is she loves to talk about what she's going to be when she grows up. And, you know, I really remember being at the same place and liking to be able to talk about this, what I was going to be when I grew up. And, you know, she kind of goes back and forth depending on the day. On some days, if you ask Gracie what she wants to be, and you don't really have to ask her, she volunteers it she'll tell you that she's going to be a teacher and a mom, or maybe a doctor and a wife. But then, the very next day, she might tell you, she'll say something like, you know, Dad, I was thinking, I, I think I want to be a member of the Justice League instead. Or or maybe I'll be a pop star. You can be a pop star and like an astronaut, right, Dad? When I was a youth pastor, I was counseling with a 10th grader. And he had just a dreadful home situation and really just lacked guidance in his life. And I was kind of building a relationship with him, building a friendship. And I said, so tell, tell me where you see yourself, man. Tell, tell me where you're headed. Tell me, tell me what the future looks like for you, what you, what, what you want to be, what you want to accomplish, what you want to do. And I remember he looked and, and he thought about it and he was being dead serious. And he said, you know, I think I might want to be a ninja. And, you know, you don't want to laugh because you're going to crush the kid's spirit. I mean, he's being honest, you know. And so I thought, you know, buddy, that might be a bit impractical. What about a plan B? You know, like I might, you might want a fallback plan. He thought about it for a second and he said, you know, I, I could see myself playing in the NBA. And uh, so anyway, but as funny as those things are, the truth is, is that all of us, as the older that we get and as we mature in life, we realize that our view of the future is often impractical, don't we? That even our most basic and simplest aspirations often prove to be anything but basic and anything but simple. They often prove to be quite difficult and almost impossible unless you're a Christian. And here's here's what I mean by that. I I don't mean that you're going to realize every aspiration that you have for this life. I don't mean that everything good is going to come about in next week or the next day. or If you have enough faith or enough belief or anything like that. What I mean is, is that as a Christian, we get to look to the future with an unbridled optimism. We get to look to the future and realize, I'm not grown yet. I'm not fully mature yet. I'm not who I'm going to be yet, but one day, one day. So I want you to hold that in the back of your minds this morning as we go to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. We're actually going to be covering... Uh, Exodus chapter 7 through 10, but we're just going to look, we're going to use verses 1 through 13 of chapter 7 to help us frame up the rest of it. So what we're talking about today is all of the signs or plagues that comes against Egypt except the last one. We're going to come back to the last one next week, the plague of the Passover. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? We're in Exodus chapter 7, we're going to read the first 13 verses together. And it says, "And the Lord said to Moses, "See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. What makes a king great? What makes Alexander the great and Ivan the terrible? That's the question that really gets to the heart of what Exodus is teaching us. That's the question that Exodus is really seeking to answer. I mean, first of all, who is it that is the greatest king? Is it, is it Pharaoh that is great? Or is it the king of the Hebrews, the king of Israel? Is it Yahweh who is great? And if we are to propose that it is Yahweh, the king of Israel, who is great, then there's some serious questions that come with that. If he is so great, why is his people, why are his people in bondage? Why are his people oppressed? Why are his people suffering? Why are the whips coming across their backs? Why are they having to throw their children into the Nile River? Why is the mightiest military of the world coming against them? That is, if God is so great, how in the world do we live with poverty and war and racism and riots? See, the, qu- the thing is, is not only do we, ha- are we, do we have the responsibility of declaring the one who is great, but then we have the responsibility of deciding what upholds our definition of greatness. What is it that upholds so that we can say definitively and then describe him to others and describe him to our children that he is great and this is why he's great. This is how we see his greatness. I think that's what Egypt's plagues are about. I think that's what Egypt's plagues are aiming to do. They're aiming to show us the greatness of God. I think that's the overarching truth, the surpassing greatness of God. And then I think that it's showing us the two pillars which uphold the greatness of God, which are his justice and his mercy. You'll see, uh, first of all, the overarching truth, which is God is a king of surpassing greatness. That God is a king of surpassing greatness. In just the verses that we read this morning, you can already see that this is at the forefront of what God is seeking to accomplish. In verse 3, he says this, he says, That he will multiply his signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Now, throughout the scripture, we talked about this a little bit in Genesis. We see this in the Gospel of John. But why is it that God gives signs to his people? You ever wondered that? Why is it that God would give signs to his people? Well, the reason that God gives signs to his people are so that his people can see his greatness. The reason that God gives signs to his people is so that they can say, see that not the laws of nature not the rules of logic, not what is expected. Nothing will stop God from keeping his promises, from upholding his word, and from delivering his people. Nothing. It doesn't matter if it's, a, if it's an ocean, it doesn't matter if it's a weather system, it doesn't matter if it's, a, if it's a war. There is nothing, nothing that will prevent God from overcoming for his people, for his promises, for his covenants. And so his signs are used in his people to uphold his greatness in their eyes. But there's a second reason that we see that God gives these signs. It says in verse 5, so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That it isn't just Israel that is to know that He is the covenant God. It is not just Israel to know that He is Yahweh, but it is Egypt that must know. It is the enemies of God that must know. It is those who have set themselves against his people, those who have set themselves against his name, those who are working against his glory, that they just as truly and just as surely must see the greatness of God. And so the plagues are going to come against Egypt for this twofold reason to uphold the people of God and to take down the enemies of God. So in chapter 10, Uh, Verse 1, it will ultimately tell us that he will bring them to be so that they will see his glory. That is that Egypt's experience with greatness will be misery and his people's experience will be joy. You see, through the plagues, we see God revealing his surpassing greatness in a very particular way. The Egyptians were what we consider to be pantheists, all right? So what that means is, is they looked around at the things that they saw in the creation, and they believed that the creation itself was eternal. They believed that it was the creation that they should offer sacrifices to. It was the creation that they should pacify. It was the creation that had always been and would always be, that they were kind of at the mercy of what the creation was. And so they would see the Nile, all right? The Nile itself represented three different gods for the Egyptians. The Nile was the economic force for the Egyptians. This what upheld them and prevented pestilence and famine then you had frogs, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out a couple of the different plagues, and we could go all the way through the ten uh, if we had the time. But you, you read about frogs, and, and ancient Egypt frogs were uh, all along the banks of the Nile, and they were considered sacred. It was illegal in Egypt to kill a frog, and it was because they represented fertility. They represented prosperity. The the supreme God of Egypt, the one that they believed was most transcendent, the one that they were most fervent in their worship, was the sun itself. I mean, what is further from us? What is bigger than us? What is, what is greater than us than the sun? And it is the sun that illumines the day and allows us to not walk through the darkness. It is the sun that allows our crops to grow in. It's the sun that warms our faces and warms our homes. It's the sun that allows us to have any standard of living at all. And so what does God do? God takes the lifeblood of the Nile... And he brings it and he turns it to blood. He makes it a stench right in the heart of Egypt. He takes frogs and he multiplies them so plentifully over the whole land. The sacred creature that it says that they're in the cupboards and they're under the bed and they're in the oatmeal and they're in your pillowcase. They're everywhere. He takes the light of the sun and he turns it out. For three days... Now, look, y'all, there's no LED lights happening in Cairo and Memphis, okay? There's no low glows on the chariots. It's dark. And three days, they, don't ha- they have no clue. And so this is the stock market crashing. This is your enemies invading you. This is disease striking you. This is natural disaster all bundled up in one common experience. And you see, what we see is that Genesis begins with creation... And Exodus begins with decreation. Genesis begins with creation, and Exodus begins with decreation. That creation shows that God created all things, and decreation shows that God rules over all things. I want you to think about this. Think about how Genesis started. Genesis starts, and God creates the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit is hovering over the deep. And it says that it's formless and dark and void, that the picture is a picture of chaos. And as God begins to speak, what he does is he brings order to chaos. That God begins to speak and all of a sudden the planet is filled with vegetation, and then it's inhabited, teeming in the oceans with fish and birds flying through the sky, and livestock living and grazing in the garden, and there, right in the midst of all of it, he puts his image bearer, he puts Adam and Eve right there, representing him, and so the the picture is, is there was darkness, but now there is light. There was chaos, but now there is calm. There was disorder, but now there is order. There was vacuum, void, emptiness, but now it is populated and full. By the time you get to the 10th plague, the hell has beaten down the vegetation. The locusts have picked all the trees clean. The hell has begun to strike down livestock and people. The darkness fills the earth so that now where there was order, there is disorder. Where there was calm, there is chaos. Where there was illumination, there is soul-piercing darkness. It's the opposite. That Genesis begins with a dark, formless and void world, and Exodus ends the plagues in the very same place. You see, the point is, is that creation is not the point. The creation is not the point. The creator is. That Egypt worships what they see, but Israel, they worship the one who made what they see. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. See, nothing that you see, nothing that you hold, nothing that you can buy, nothing that you can build, nothing that you can make is worthy of your worship. It doesn't matter. The most beautiful and enchanting sunset, sunset, the most majestic view of the Rocky Mountains, the, the most expansive ocean, the kindest person, the most innocent child, none of them are worthy of your worship, but they are glimpses. They are invitations. They are calls to pursue and to live for a king of surpassing glory. They are calls to look to beyond as great as what you can see is there must be one that is far greater that is beyond it there must be one that is far greater that designed it that built it that created it that the point of the creation is that it's meant to trigger your imagination about the surpassing greatness of the one who is behind over and in it all and that brings us to the two pillars right So so the overarching principle being taught is that God is a king of surpassing greatness. But now we come to the the two pillars that are upholding his greatness, how we can uphold our definition of what is greatness. And and we see them in 7 through 10 as that, first of all, his greatness is displayed by his irrefutable justice and enjoyed by his inextinguishable mercy. That his greatness is on one hand displayed by his irrefutable justice Justice. That's one pillar and on the other it is enjoyed by his inextinguishable mercy that these are the specific shades of his greatness that we're supposed to see here. Think back to verse 5 we read the first part of it earlier it says the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. That is, the Egyptians shall shall know that I am the Lord, that I am the covenant-making God. They shall know this when my justice rains down upon them. They shall know it when they reap the consequences of all that they have sown. They shall know it when they feel my vengeance and vindication of my people come against them in the plagues. But that's not all he says. He says, the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I bring out the people of Israel from among them. So there's another experience of the same greatness. On one it is to be feared, but on the other, his people will be delivered. His people will be saved. They will be rescued, so they will enjoy it. So it is the enjoyment of his inextinguishable mercy. First, let's look at his, how God's greatness is displayed by his irrefutable justice. So throughout the book of Exodus, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart becomes paramount. It's mentioned 18 different times. But what makes this an especially touchy subject is that it actually says in there that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. You even see it here in Exodus 7. Exodus 4, Exodus 7, it says it even before you ever get to the first confrontation of the Pharaoh. That this is what's going to happen. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. There's three different descriptions of the hard heart of Pharaoh given in the book of Exodus. Once it it describes him as hardening his own heart. Another time it describes his heart as being hardened as though it's already hardened. And then thirdly it describes God as being the one who hardens it. Now what's hard about that and what's difficult about that is we start to wonder like, okay, Pharaoh is held accountable for his hardened heart. But God is the one who says that he did it. That the Bible, we see in Psalm 105, we see in Romans chapter 9, and we see here in Exodus itself that God is going to great lengths to actually take credit for it. to, To bear the responsibility of Pharaoh's heart. So how is it that Pharaoh can be held responsible and God can be held responsible? So there's this tension that's building, right? And by the way, it's a tension that the Bible leaves. The Bible is happy to continue in this mystery. But why is it that God would accept responsibility for Pharaoh's heart? Why is it that God would ex- accept any responsibility for the wickedness of Pharaoh's heart? Why would he go to such great lengths to say I will harden his heart? I think there's two reasons. First of all, it's an explanation of the plan. It's an explanation of the plan. He says in verse 4, he says so that you're going to see this is what's going to happen. This is the plan. That that regardless of what you see with your eyes, regardless of how it feels regardless how it of how it appears what I want you to know is that there are some difficult days ahead and it's not going to appear as though I'm delivering you it's not going to appear as though you're going to be able to make it out. But I am at work, and I am doing something that is going to reveal my glory in a far greater way. So I am going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. So when it doesn't go right, when, when Pharaoh does not release you, when you're not able to go, I want you to know this is the script, man. This is providence. This is my decree. This is my plan. And you will know by the hardness of Pharaoh's heart that I'm there and I'm at work. The second reason is that it says that it's a de- declaration of judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt. Look what it says in verse 4. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. That is, it is for the mistreatment and the oppression of his people. It is for the wickedness of of Pharaoh, It is for the wickedness of Egypt that God is going to give him over to his own reprobate mind. That God is going to give him over to his own hardened heart. That God is going to allow him to remain hard-hearted. See, this doesn't sound good to us. That's, that's what the struggle is, right? This doesn't sound good to us. We don't think it sounds good that God would harden the heart of a sinner. That God would harden the heart of a man. But if justice is good, then this is good. If justice is good, then this is good. God's justice contributes to His goodness. If you took away his justice, he would no longer be good. He would no longer be holy. No, Pharaoh had oppressed God's people. Pharaoh had rejected God's messengers. He had declared himself as God's superior. What is the reasonable response to such cosmic treason as this? What is such, what's a reasonable response to such blasphemy as this? See, God is glorified by his just judgments God is glorified by his just judgments. God is glorified by the sentencing of those who declare independence from him. It upholds his justice. It displays his goodness. It puts on picture, his holiness. See, he's given Pharaoh what he wants. You understand that? He's given Pharaoh what he wants. At no point in the passage can Pharaoh not do exactly what he wants to do. The problem is, is that Pharaoh's will is in bondage. Pharaoh is dead in his trespasses. The problem is, is that his wants and desires and heart are corrupt. What did God have to do to harden Pharaoh's heart? Nothing. Nothing. He let Pharaoh be. He let Pharaoh do. He let Pharaoh decide. He let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. What God had to do to harden Pharaoh's heart was nothing at all, was to take inaction, not action. All God had to do to harden Pharaoh's heart was to leave him alone. See, the only way for a heart to soften in the presence of a holy God is if God softens it. That's the new covenant, right? I'm gonna take from you the heart of stone. I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. I'm gonna give you a new heart and a new nature and a new passion with new wants and new inclinations with new abilities of faithfulness that you didn't have before. I'm gonna take from you the heart of stone and give to you a heart of flesh. So the only way that it can, so what it means when God says I've hardened his heart is that he has taken decisive action to not soften the heart of Pharaoh. He chooses to give to you what you want or to not interrupt you from your just judgment with his radical mercy and his outlandish, outrageous grace. And we should be warned by Pharaoh. We should be warned by the account of Pharaoh that multiple times it appears as though Pharaoh is going to repent. It appears as though he's going to relent and that he's going to let the people go, only to find out later it was false repentance, right? He even says in chapter 9, verse 27, this time I have sinned. This is Pharaoh talking, and I have sinned, it can actually be translated, this time I have been unjust. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. But you see, for Pharaoh, this was just a bargaining chip. It, It was just his attempt at manipulating God to do what he wanted God to do for him. He thought if I will just say the right things and perform the right rituals and feel the right emotions and go to the right places and talk to the right people, then the plagues will go away. And after that, I'll figure out to do what I'm going to do with Israel and I'll do whatever I want to. But Pharaoh's negotiations betray his understanding of the gods. You see, every god is is but a superstition except the Lord. Every God is but a superstition except the Lord. They are slaves to rituals and manipulated by external portrayals of righteousness, unable to see the heart, unable to change the heart, unable to affect the heart. Y'all, is there any wonder why sinners are perplexed and petrified by a God who is not manipulated by simple trifles and performance? How many for us, how many of our false conversions and formula prayers and superficial repentances are nothing deeper than cultural superstitions intended to manipulate God into giving to us exactly what we want. Whether it's heaven or a negative pregnancy test or out of a bad situation or an influx of cash into our business, we start praying and we start reading our Bibles and we start going to church again and we stop cussing again and we start doing all the right things again and we're performing and the performance is for the sake of God seeing it and being changed and being manipulated to giving us what we want, what we desire, what we're looking for. It is the performance of formula prayers and ritual as though God is a it's a rabbit's foot that we can pull out of our pocket. A superstition that we can prey upon. But y'all, God is no superstition. God is a person with whom we relate. He is a God to whom we answer. He is a king of surpassing greatness. This morning, no no more superstitious ceremonies. No more cultural constructs of who you want God to be. No more manipulative rituals. No more rehearsed prayers. No, this morning, surrender to the one of surpassing greatness. That's the call of Pharaoh. One of the striking features of the narrative, though, is how the same event, the same exodus event, can be a curse for one people and a blessing for the other. How it can be a judgment of wickedness for the one and a judgment of mercy for the other. But that's what we see, isn't it? Judgment, evil, wickedness, and judgment upon the wickedness and evil in Egypt. But mercy shared with Israel. And that's where we see the other pillar, that God's greatness is enjoyed by his inextinguishable mercy. You see, his greatness isn't just to be feared by his enemies. Y'all, that's where it's gotten so wrong and so sideways in the church for so long, is that it's always us against them and the enemies and the enemies and the enemies. But we never stop to relish and revel and delight in the gospel. See, that's what's being foreshadowed in that very first sign. When, when Aaron lays down his staff and it turns into a serpent, Pharaoh calls all the uh, other sorcerers, and seven of them, they, they turn into they turn into serpents too, right? And the question there is, oh, you think you're better than me? Like, you you think you're you think that was a cool trick? What do you see what I can do? And I think this is just fantastic. Like It's awesome that God pulled this off, right? Like, like he he couldn't pull it off. But just the fact that he did, is fantastic. So he creates all these these different serpents, and they're slithering around. and, And, you know, Pharaoh, you can imagine, he's there, and his chest is out, and he's proud of himself. And then Aaron's serpent swallows all of the other serpents. I mean, that's not natural. Snakes don't do that. But it was a picture, wasn't it? It was a picture of who exactly really was preeminent. It was a, a, a picture of which was a magic trick and which was a display of greatness. It was a picture of, of what will be judged and who will be upheld and who will be delivered. See, this process is going to be up and down. This process is going to be hard, but it's going to be to the ultimate vindication and enjoyment of God's people. You see, mercy is the alleviation of justice, not the execution of justice. Mercy is the alleviation of justice, not the execution of justice. As Dr. Sproul says, mercy is not justice or injustice. Mercy is non-justice. It's not getting what you deserve. It's not getting the judgment that that you ought to get. It's not receiving the consequences that you ought to get. And that's Israel's position here. Israel didn't deserve the enjoyment of God. They doubted God. They they were rebelling against God. They were worshipping false gods. They were blaspheming against God. They They were trying to depose Moses. Moses himself was calling God evil and tell, asking him why he had done such evil things against them. They didn't uh, deserve him. Their performance had not warranted him, but it wasn't about them. It wasn't about them. It was about the surpassing greatness of their king, you see. See, in chapter 10, verse 2, it says this, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. You see, God's mercy gives us a story to tell. God was giving Israel a story of his greatness that they were to tell to all future generations. It's the story of how God God rained justice down upon Egypt, but he flooded the Goshen Valley where the Israelites were dwelling with mercy. It's the story of how the gnats and the hell and the locusts knew just where to stop. So the very best way for you to disciple your children The very best way for you to disciple your grandchildren, the best way for you to take the mantle of the gospel and to hand it over to the next generation is for them to know your experience with God's mercy. It is for them to hear the story of God's work in your life. That Christianity isn't a series of dry old lectures by a guy in a cheap suit. Christianity is the deliverance by the living, surpassing king of the universe, of individual sinners out of judgment and into delights. Virtually every single child that I know that grows up and doesn't leave the faith, Has parents that don't just say they like God, don't just attend church regularly, but live with actual joy in the gospel. With actual joy in the gospel. That their Christian faith is not an evaluation of a weekly church service. Their Christian faith is an abiding in Christ that transforms their life, transforms their attitudes, transforms their character into something different. And they see it and they realize that is the missing link in my life. See, mercy isn't just a story of decreation. Mercy is the story of recreation. Israel is leaving a land that God has ravaged and left as a shell of itself. And they are being taken and given over into a promised land that will flow with milk and honey. And it is a foreshadowing of a greater narrative, of a greater picture that is true for us, that Christ has come, that we might be recreated with a new nature and we have been recreated with a new nature in preparation of living in a new kingdom with a new heaven and a new earth. So y'all, you aren't yet who you're gonna be. You haven't grown up yet. You're still growing up. You're still growing into who you're gonna be. You are right now in part... Well, one day you're going to be in full. But in Christ, in Christ, what you can say is that in the future, I will be. I will be incorruptible. I will be imperishable. I will be unstoppable. I will be pure and perfect. I will be holy and whole. I will be patient. I will be kind. I will be gentle. I will be loving. Now, your optimism isn't impractical. Your optimism is purchased. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.